What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Trying to get that question answered somehow? Well, we can help you with that. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 and of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, uh, we are, I think, ready to go here. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, normally our phone screener, but today it is Ace McKay. And uh, Jeff Burson normally handles uh, uh, social media for us. Uh, we also have um, someone else handling that. I'll fill you in on that just a moment. If you have a question uh, that you would like to pose via YouTube or Facebook, you can do that by putting your question in the comments section. And uh, Michael McCall will be taking care of that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Amanda. Amanda says, I am not Catholic because... If Jesus really is present on earth, he would not come in bread and wine, but something much greater. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So uh, I, I think that your your objection misunderstands the Catholic doctrine on the various modes of God's presence among us, uh, because it's not as though Catholics think that the only way Christ is present is in the Blessed Sacrament. And and I'll have a few words to say about that as well. I yeah. wouldn't be as dismissive of that as, <laughs> as you are. But so let's let's talk about some of the ways in which God is present to us, or Christ also is present to us. So first of all, uh, God is present to us by his omniscience. So God sees all things, knows all things, uh, you know, knows uh, our inner life and our thoughts, are rising and are waking and has us written in his book of life and knows our days as they're numbered from beginning to end. I mean, there's a providential care of God for the human person uh, that is all-knowing. Jesus is not a sparrow falls apart from the will of God our Father. God is also present to us uh, by his immensity. And what I mean by that is you understand that God is everywhere. God's ubiquitous. Um, but um, if you don't think about it too hard, you might think, say, for example, that there's more of God in an elephant than in a mouse. You know, but God doesn't take up any space. And so to really think about the nature of God's presence being everywhere, you have to realize that all of God, that the, the, the totality of God is present to us in every particle of our, of our corporality. Like literally every, everything that is God is present to us at every level of our being, at every moment of our being, because God is what undergirds and underwrites our very act of being. St. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Mm -hmm. So this is an incredibly intimate form of presence. St. Augustine said of this, you know, what, 1,600 years ago, he said, God, you are more interior to me than I am to myself. What a beautiful yeah. turn of phrase that. Yeah. So we've got God's omniscience. We have God's immensity. 
We have God's providential care, uh, as he, again, as he superintends the events of our life for his loving purposes. Um, we have Christ present to us by way of his grace, this, this, uh, this participation that we have in the divine nature that comes through baptism and rebirth in the Holy Spirit. Uh, St. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 4, that we become participants in the divine nature. St. Paul writes about an aspect of this participation in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he, and also Philippians chapter 2, where he says that those who have the Spirit of God have the mind of Christ, that Christ can indwell us in a way that's transformative of our consciousness, that we can come to see the world through Jesus' eyes, become in the world a kind of another Christ, as it were. Jesus perpetuating the blessing of his incarnation through the persons of his saints, through those that are members of his body. Uh, that's another metaphor that Scripture uses. It talks about us being members of Christ's body, right? Um, this is an incredibly intimate form of presence. Uh, that, furthermore, means that when we confront others in Christ's name, mm-hmm. particularly those that are members of Christ's body, that we can see Christ in the face, in the persons of our neighbors, and especially when they are also baptized people, but also in the face of the poor, even those alienated from God or the Church or the Gospel. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, famous Catholic religious, you may have heard of her, Mother, St. Mother Teresa. Her whole ministry was a ministry of care to the sick and the poor and the dying, whether they were Catholic or not, on, on her belief that what she did for the least of these, she did also for Jesus. Uh, Jesus says that, right? That this is another mode of Christ's presence, as he's present to us in other individuals. Um, now let's talk about the Blessed Sacrament. Why would Christ give himself to us in the form of bread and wine, or under the appearance of bread and wine? Well, a uh, lot going on there. So at one level, St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, that those of us who partake of this one loaf are one bread, one body in Christ. That the Eucharist, as the central rite of the Church's worship, is the occasion to bring this collectivity, this family of God, together in one place under one common creed, one common confession, one common experience of charity and faith and union. And so we meet Christ not only in what we call the consecrated species, which is the physical host of Holy Communion, but in the community that comes to form around that for purposes of worshiping God together. Um, uh, then, of course, there is the question of the real presence itself. And you, 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 you suggest that this is somehow um, unworthy of God, unworthy of Christ to make his body and blood present to us in this way. Uh, well, you're not the first to make that charge. And, of course, that's what Christ's own hearers suggested in John chapter 6 when he said, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. They didn't like that teaching, so they walked away. The disciples said, who are we going to go to, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So why might Christ give himself to us under this form? Well, one way, one reason, of course, is that we might offer him back to the Father in sacrifice. St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then finally, Mm -hmm. as we commune in Christ's body through the physical reception of Holy Communion, uh, it is both a, a symbol and a reality, the reality of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, but a powerful reminder of Christ's desire to be intimate with us, to be present to us in the most tangible way possible, namely through this act of Holy Communion. Amanda, thank you so much for your comment. If you would like to uh, give us a call, lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion on EWTN. 
Welcome back. It is called Communion here on EWTN. Calls coming in right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's uh, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're watching us on TV today, you can participate as well. Our email address, ctc at ewtn.com. Here's one of those emails right now from John. How do you answer the problem of Catholics not practicing church teaching? Um, how do I answer the problem of Catholics not practicing <laughs> church teaching? Well, by attempting to follow church teaching. That's that's number one. Yes. By elucidating church teaching, and that's what we do on EWTN. We try to, this is what the church teaches, yes. right? Yes. This is our obligations. These are what we need to believe. Uh, so we try to make that clear, try to live by example if possible, although I, I admit to being a fairly poor example, but, you know, I'm working on it, work in progress. Um, and, uh, and so very rarely, very rarely would I personally resort to admonishing someone who wasn't following church teaching unless I had some jurisdiction, some sort of claim in their life that mm. made that an appropriate thing to do. Okay. Um, the church teaches us that sometimes to admonish the sinner really is a genuine work of mercy, uh, but the goal is to move the ball down the field, to help this person actually come uh, amend their life. If, if my intervention is only going to serve to inflame them or embitter them, then I'm, I'm better off keeping my mouth shut. Uh, but, you know, if you, the parent of a child, for example, has, has some sway there that another person would not have, obviously if you're the pastor of a parish, then you then you have a position of authority to sure. operate with. You know, So it kind of depends on the relative position and the relationship of the folks involved as to whether or not you, you should say something. And very often, if you're, say, you have a family member or something, uh, but maybe you're not their parent, or maybe they're a grown child, um, they already know what you think. Sure. And so you're telling them what they're doing wrong, probably, like, that didn't work for the first 30 years, <laughs> you know? It's not going to work now. Yeah. And so we have to try a different approach. All right, very good. And, uh, John, thanks so much for your email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Chris in Iowa, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Chris, what's on your mind today? I have a question uh, for Dr. Anders. I've been working on uh, my imitation of Christ, taking each chapter independently. Um, and my question is this. The way Thomas Kempis uh, approaches nature is really kind of a negative thing and something we need to uh, pay attention to. But St. Augustine, for example, is always talking about natural law being one of those things that at some level explains why what we do is correct. So I am struggling with the difference between Thomas Kempis and nature and St. Augustine and natural law. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I personally, I don't really consider a Kempis to be a theologian at all. Uh, a Kempis and the Imitation of Christ are uh, devotional books that are useful exhortations uh, to piety in the pursuit of virtue and mm. holiness and sanctity. And um, there is a bit of a, well, kind of a sentimental approach in Akempis. I mean, the form of the book is presented as a dialogue between Christ and the soul, so there's some artistic, um, you know, literary elements there that are yeah. really not the language of strict theology. Okay. And, and, uh, and, you know, and he's part of a movement, and he has a sort of location in time and space and history in the, the so-called Devotio Moderna of the, of the Brethren of the Common Life, this, this Dutch religious order that he was a member of, and they have their own sort of spiritual emphases. And, 
And, you know, when you're the world of spirituality uh, is very different from the world of theology. Spiritualities, and they come in the plural, are really ways of praying, ways of thinking, ways of orienting one's life in an attempt to imitate Christ and to grow in holiness. Uh, but spiritualities are, are really peculiar and, and kind of particular to the individual temperament and the individual soul. And so I always advocate, not just me, I mean, this is the Church's teaching, that you find the spirituality that helps you grow in holiness. And so anytime somebody calls me and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm into this saint, or I'm into this devotional practice, or I'm into this particular spirituality, and it's just not working for me. I, I got, and my, my suggestion is, well, then let's go find one that was working for you. Let, rather than try to sort of squeeze a round peg into a square hole, mm. let's go find the one that works for you. Sure. Um, so when you want the, the uh, sort of the authoritative teaching on what does the church think about nature, natural law, well, now we're in the realm of dogmatic theology first and foremost, and, and we're not going to reverse engineer it from somebody's spirituality. So a safer bet for me would be to direct you to, say, the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas, a different Thomas, a doc, common doctor of the Church, whose teaching really is authoritative on things like nature and grace and natural law. So the second part of his Summa, the- Summa Theologica, where he talks about those things, talks about nature, talks about law. Um, I, I would go there and do some study, read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, read um, great uh, modern Catholic writers like Joseph Pieper, Jacques Maritain, just, you know, Etienne Gilson, just some names off the top of my head, um, uh, and uh, Second Vatican Council, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, um, lots of great literature that you could go to to get a better grip on, you know, the Church's position on nature and natural law. You're right, natural law is absolutely obligatory. It's the bedrock of our moral thinking, and uh, and I will acknowledge that there are some Catholic devotionalists down through the centuries who, in a kind of uh, enthusiastic asceticism, will say nasty things about their bodies and say some nasty things about the natural world. But it's from a particular point of view. It's like mm. it's someone who's struggling with that sort of the, the clinging of the flesh and the trying to break free of temptation. Uh-huh. And I, I wouldn't take that kind of language, since it's devotional language rather than theological, I wouldn't really take that with the kind of strict literalism that you would that you would use, you know, say, in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so I hope that gives you some perspective. And, um, and yeah, and you're kind of comparing apples and oranges. Um, uh, by way of contrast, I'd like to suggest another book to you and that is the book The Mind's Journey into God by St. Bonaventure. Mm. All right? uh, Bonaventure is earlier than, than Akempis. Uh, he's a 13th century theologian, Franciscan. And if you want to see someone write about nature, a nature that is just utterly suffused with the glory of God and intimations of the Holy Trinity and the life of grace, Bonaventure's account of the natural world and the way that feeds directly into our spirituality and our grasp of the Godhead uh, is just exquisite in his book, The Mind's Journey into God, Itinerium Mentis and Deum. So go lay a hold of that. And, of course, uh, I commend your reading of St. Augustine. Keep plowing through Augustine, particularly if you've never read the Confessions. By all yeah. means, uh, bury yourself in the Confessions. Chris, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Glad that you're with us today. Here's an interesting email from Steve. Why does the Apostles' Creed include the statement, on the third day he rose again from the dead? Does the Creed imply that Jesus rose from the dead the first time to descend into hell, and then he died again, and then rose again from the dead the second time? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I get this actually quite a lot, 
and uh, and it is a misunderstanding of what is, in essence, uh, an English idiom. Right? You know, an idiom is a, a, a series of words, a phrase in some language, mm-hmm. the meaning or significance of which does not correspond to the denotative sense of the words. You know, okay. like like, you know, you're beating a dead horse. Ah, is an idiom. Okay. What does it mean? It's I'm, I'm running on at the mouth about something. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I'm flogging, you know, the carcass of an animal, right? Idiomatic expressions. Um, and in English, when we refer to the resurrection of Christ from the dead on the mm-hmm. third day, mm-hmm. <clears throat> for whatever reason, etymologically, we say rose again. We could just say he rose. It means the same thing. It's just an idiomatic expression. I see. That's entered into the theological vocabulary through the creed that indicates the fact of his resurrection. It doesn't refer to some some multiple cases of Jesus' resurrection. There's just one resurrection yeah. from the dead that Christ had. Uh, that's what we're talking about. One of the common things that comes up these days, and you'll hear people say it all the time, they'll go, also two, and you go, wait, wait. <laughs> it's either also or two. That's a little bit redundant, redundant. I, I had, a, I had a, an expository writing teacher in high school who he was uh, he was a peculiar sort. He was the kind of fellow that would write letters to the editor and complain about the grammar in the newspaper, you know? He was uh-huh. he was real persnickety, but a uh-huh. great a great teacher. He he absolutely his hair was on fire over the expression free gift. Oh yeah. He's like if it ain't free, it's not a gift. If it's a gift, it's free. Redundancy, man, redundancy. <laughs> There's also near miss. You know? Oh, it's yeah. not a near miss, it's a near hit. Right. <laughs> right. There you go. All right. Very good. Call to communion here on EWTN. Now, a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. An email here from Abina. As a practicing Catholic, is it sinful of me to visit a couple's home who have a child, but they're not married? Um, well, if it is sinful, then Jesus was in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. That's that's a lot of what Jesus did with his time. <clears throat> he was teaching the disciples in secret. He was expounding parables in public. Mm-hmm. And when he wasn't doing those two things, well, the other two things he did was run off to the desert and spend time alone in prayer and go visit people's houses who were in irregular situations. Mm. In fact, it, he caught a lot of flack from the religious authorities of Judea at the time because they said, hey, you're going and visiting, you know, these prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards and gluttons and sinners of all stripes. And if Jesus were incarnate today, I'm, I'm sure he would be visiting the homes of people in irregular unions with children and, and a lot of other situations sure, too. Sure. And, and I'm sure people would go, hey, what are you doing going over there for? Doesn't that give a bad impression? And he didn't care about the bad impression. He was there to try to reach people and love them and bring them into the kingdom of God. There you go. And uh, Abina, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's an email now from Robert. I'm asking today about the Catholic understanding of predestination and how it relates to Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. I have heard Catholic apologists say things like, the Catholic understanding is not the same as Protestant understanding. Some are predestined, some aren't, or that some would be predestined for hell. All that seems unjust. That's from Robert. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So <clears throat> the Calvinist, not the Catholic, the Calvinist idea of predestination is that God specifically determines the fate of every soul uh, from eternity past and ordains them either to heaven or hell um, for his own inscrutable purposes 
without consideration of their foreseen merits or, or, or just desserts. He just, I'm going to make, you know, a third of the human race for heaven and two-thirds for hell, and isn't that wonderful? And that's the Calvinist position. And it's called double predestination because it includes the idea that God decrees the damnation of souls before they've done anything good or bad or before they've even been created. Hmm. That is what the Catholic Church rejects. <clears throat> now, the language of predestination, the term predestination, is a biblical term. We find it in sacred scripture, and pro orzo in Greek, and it just means to mark out in advance. And, and there have been a lot of ways that this concept was employed uh, or understood in theology down through the centuries, and, and some of them are allowed and some of them aren't. And there's really a variety of opinions within the Catholic tradition. Uh, for about the first four centuries of Catholic history, uh, there was very little in theology about you know, the idea of you know, God foreordaining uh, the salvation of any particular individual uh, because the Church put a very, very heavy emphasis on the doctrine of the freedom of the will. And, and as well as the God's universal will to save everyone. And so those two things really mitigate, mitigated against an idea of sort of special election to salvation for a few. And um, what changed the tide was the commentaries of St. Augustine of Hippo. And when St. Thomas began to study the Book of Romans, I meant St. Thomas, St. Augustine. St. <laughs> Augustine began to study the works of, uh, of St. Paul, he found this kind of language. And he began to lean a bit more heavily in the idea of God's providential control of, uh, of the individual soul and, and election to salvation. Mm -hmm. How does that work out with free will? How does that work out with divine benevolence? How does that work out with the universal will to save? Well, there have been different answers in, in Catholic tradition to that question. Um, uh, he, let me give you a few of them. So one of them is uh, there's a position— in theology called Molinism. It's an allowable position. It's not dogmatic. You don't have to hold it, but there are Catholic theologians that do, that say that God grants get grace, he determines to grant grace, based on his foreknowledge of how humans will or won't freely cooperate with it. And so he, it, it requires God's knowledge of counterfactuals. He needs to know what would have happened if. Mm -hmm. And so that there's a kind of intelligibility to God's gift of grace, why some would have more grace than others, why some would get grace or some wouldn't. Uh -huh. um, uh, there are others that say, no, 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 that, that still ascribes too much to the human person. God gives uh, sufficient grace to everyone, enough grace for any individual to be soul saved, but the efficacious grace that sort of sees you to the end, well, that he grants to a few based on some inscrutable criterion that we don't know. Um, but that he elects no one to damnation. And that's another position that's allowable in Catholic theology. Um, I will now speak sort of off the cuff. Uh, I'm going to depart from the language of dogmatics and, and deal more in biblical theology. That's my personal opinion. Okay. I think the whole idea of predestination and election that we find in Scripture uh, it really has to do with the election of individuals and groups for some purpose in salvation history, like the election of Abraham, the election of Moses, the election of Christ himself, is there for the sake of the world. And the context in Romans 9 to 11 is about groups of people. It's about Jews and Gentiles in relationship. And the language there is about why does God choose Israel, right? It's not for Israel alone. It's for the sake of the world. God chose Abraham not to be a blessing to himself, but that through him all nations would be blessed. We as Catholics, who are called to be a part of the Catholic Church, are elect in Christ as members of the Church, which is that instrument that God has put in the world to do good to the whole world. And so it's an election to service. It's an election to a vocation, a vocation to holiness, an election 
uh, to being the presence of Christ in the world to bring salvation to as many people as possible. And, uh, and I don't have to get hung up in the metaphysics of divine foreknowledge and final judgment, and certainly not in the nastiness of Calvinism. Well, that's a relief. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for your uh, question today. Uh, coming up in a moment, it'll be Rob, a first-time caller from Boise, also Barbara in Corpus Christi. Lines are open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. For Call to Communion, do stay with us. Hey, glad you're with us here on Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We have two lines open at the moment, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Annunciation Radio, on five FM stations in northern Ohio, now celebrating their 13th year with EWTN. Congratulations to Dave Vacheres and his great team there at Annunciation Radio from all of us at EWTN. Back to the phones now. Here is Rob, a first-time caller in Boise, listening on the great Salt and Light Radio. Hey there, Rob. What's on your mind today, sir? Howdy, gentlemen. My favorite show on the station is you guys. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So uh, I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but um, at the church that I've recently started attending, there's a, a gentleman, one of the pastors, that has such a heavy accent, and I don't begin to know where the gentleman's from, and it doesn't matter. I cannot understand him. And I mean, the gospel is my favorite, you know, one of my favorite parts of Mass, and I cannot make a thing out of this person saying. I, I realize they've thrown you a heck of a curveball here, that they're probably you know, short of changing churches, and this one's, you know, right in my neighborhood, and I, I believe there's there's an importance mm. to that. So, um, but anyway, I, you know, I don't know if there's anything I can say to them, or but, or maybe it's, I mean, I hear fine, but it's just, and I, I doubt I'm the only one, but maybe, maybe it's a question of conditioning, or I don't know. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. First of all, I understand exactly where you're coming from, and I think we've all been in that situation. Yes. If you live in the 21st century Catholic Church in North America, we know what you're talking about. And not just North America. I mean, well, lots of places in the, in the developed world. Uh, so let me say a few things, first of all. Uh, one is that I have a profound appreciation for the extern clergy from foreign lands that have given their lives in service to the American Church. And in my Catholic life, I've been Catholic for 20 years, mm -hmm. and I've had a lot of these uh, fellows come over and serve me pastorally. Um, some of them, uh, you know, can't preach their way out of a paper bag because their English is so poor. I and mean, that's just a fact of the—that's just a fact of the matter. It's true. Um, almost a hundred percent of the pastoral care that my family has received—I mean, I'm talking like intimate accompaniment. People who've been there for us in times of crisis mm -hmm. have either been foreign-born clergy, or they have been Catholic religious. This mm -hmm. has been my experience that the American-born clergy with good English have, have not been, in my life, first in line to provide pastoral care to my family when we had great personal needs and crises and funerals and deaths and tragedies and all that sort of stuff. It's been the foreign-born clergy and then the religious, not the diocesan priests, who by and large have been the first in line to help us. And I, I mean, we, our, our own spiritual situation would be vastly worse but for the care of, of many of these selfless and virtuous men uh, to whom I owe an incredible debt of gratitude, and, and they know who they are in my life, and 
we tell them all the time how much we appreciate them. And, uh, and sometimes I wish we had 50 of them instead of just one. All right. So I, I, I don't want to say anything disparaging about the lives of the priests have given across the country I and mean, across the planet, across the oceans, to give their lives in service to my family and to our church. So I'm deeply, deeply, deeply appreciative of them. Um, uh, it is unfortunate that some of them are deficient in the language department. All right. Uh, normally, of course, according to the Code of Canon Law, a pastor is obliged, obliged, to make provision that the Word of God be proclaimed in its entirety to those living in the parish in such a way that he can preach a homily on Sundays and give catechetical mm-hmm. instruction and foster works by which the spirit of the gospel is promoted and the, the alienated can be reconciled and all the rest of it. I mean, this is a major part of his pastoral duty. Uh, the Code of Canon Law also teaches that the laity um, are free to make their needs known to the pastors of the church, especially their spiritual needs. And uh, according to the competence, knowledge, and prestige that they possess, they have a right, and sometimes they have a duty, to manifest to their pastor or to the bishop um, uh, their opinion on matters that pertain to the good of the church and the salvation of souls. So, uh, you know, there's your frustration that you feel like the gospel is not being adequately proclaimed because it's not in an intelligible language is a very reasonable concern. That is a very reasonable concern. But what can the diocese do about it? Yeah. That's, that's the difference. That's the challenge. Um, so uh, the fact of the matter is, in many dioceses, there just are not enough ordained persons going around to say all the masses and meet all the pastoral needs that, that are there. Um, now, I'm not saying you'll get any traction on this. There are some ideas Right? I mean, you got to be creative. Um, in a parish, <clears throat> the pastor is not the only person who is authorized to proclaim the gospel and to preach the homily. All right? There can be a parochial vicar. Uh, if, the, if the priest is a parochial vicar, uh, a deacon can also read the gospel and preach the homily. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, if, uh, if you have a deacon in your parish who can speak intelligible English and give a, you know, a, a decent address, you know, I mean, you could always have, I'm not saying you'll get anywhere, but you'd always have the conversation with the pastor or with the bishop. Hey, you know what, we, we love Father so-and-so, but, like, we just cannot understand where mm-hmm. he says. But, you know, yeah. Deacon Bill over here, uh, he preaches a mean homily in English and colloquial English at that, and, and uh, we, we can follow him. You, you think maybe we get Deacon Bill up in the, in the ambo a little bit more frequently and Father can say mass but we could have a different homeless you know and at least to you know give instruction in the faith um, that's always a possibility rob thanks so much uh, for your call today call to communion here on ewtn back to the phones and uh, mary listening in wisconsin on ewtn television mary what's on your mind today yeah uh recently a concern has come up and we're wondering how many times you can receive communion in a day right thank you you can receive communion twice in a day Twice in a day. Twice. No matter what, no matter what the mass is. Uh, doesn't matter. Now, uh, if memory serves me correct, um, if you can receive mass, you can receive communion the second time at mass if you attend the whole mass, right? So if you've been to communion, if you've been to mass in the morning, um, <clears throat> and um, you know you receive communion, mm-hmm. you don't you don't need to go out and just go to a communion service in the afternoon, right? You, you can go to mass again. You can receive three times with the pastor's permission. 
Um, but, uh, you know, depending on the context, I, I, would, I, I would offer this counsel, okay? Uh, communions are not more effective because of the numerical repetition. And so it's not like you get three times as much Jesus in a day. Christ's quantity, that's one of the accidents, mm-hmm. that's one of the properties of his physical body, is not present in the host. It's the substance of his body, blood, soul, and divinity, but not his quantity. He's not, you know, five foot ten and 170 pounds or whatever. That, that's not there. So you're not going to get quantitatively more of Christ. And grace doesn't work by mathematical proportions. So neither do you get three times as much grace. Grace increases in us according to our charity, not the frequency with which we repeat liturgical actions. And uh, it can be the case that people can become superstitious, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about this, can become superstitious about the way or the manner in which they receive the sacraments, and that can actually be a detriment to the spiritual life. Uh, In the 16th century, for example, there was a superstition. Eamon Duffy documents this in his book, uh, Stripping of the Altars, about the English Reformation, when uh, the laity often did not commune in the 16th century. So the big thing for the laity was the elevation, not the communion, but the elevation. They could see the Blessed Sacrament at the elevation and and, and worship the Lord that was held before them. Uh, a popular superstition emerged in the 16th century, totally false, no truth in this at all, but the belief began to circulate in some quarters that if you saw the elevation of the sacred host, you would not die that day. What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was totally wrong. It's not true at all, but it was a popular superstition at the time. Wow. And Duffy documents you had cases of, uh, of individuals that would dash from elevation to elevation. They would try to catch as many elevations as they can during the day. The, way, the reason we know about this kind of stuff is it's the sort of thing that bishops and pastors criticized. And they would say, guys, that's superstitious. Come on, don't do that. That's that, that's not about how many times you see the elevation in a day. It's about how much love is there in your heart mm. for Christ and neighbor. And so that's the ultimate goal. But you can go twice, three times with permission. Um, but, uh, you know, but again, I think the context, like if you, you go to a mass and then let's say you go to a wedding later or something, you have a good reason for the context to make that make sense. Mary, thanks so much for your call. Let's go now to Betty in Newburgh, New York, watching us on the uh, EWTN television today. Uh, Betty, what's on your mind? Uh, Betty in Newburgh, are you there? Yes. Hi, right, go right ahead. Okay, um... I went to Catholic, I'm 86 years old, and I went to Catholic school in the 40s. And I was taught that when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, God closed the gates to heaven. And when our Lord died on the cross, he died on the cross to open the gates of heaven so we could go to heaven. And he became man to show us how to get to heaven, how to live pick up your cross and follow me. But I hear the other religions, and everyone is saying he died to pay for our sins. And that blows my mind. I I don't understand. I never heard that for growing up. How can he die for our sins? We can, you know, you can't live and sin all your life and say, our Lord, we're saved. Our Lord died for our sins. Can you please explain to me what my what the confusion is and yeah, why our Lord died? Sure. On? 
Absolutely. A wonderful question. Can't think of a better question. Thank you so much. So how does Christ save us? And that is the ultimate question. How is it that the life and death and resurrection of this man can bring about the salvation of the world? And the truth of the matter is, is in several ways. It's not just one way. It's a multifaceted approach. It doesn't just do one thing. It does a lot of things. One of the things that Jesus did, you already mentioned, and it's tremendously important, he came to give us an example. St. Peter says that, that Christ died leaving us an example that we should follow likewise. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. To follow the example of Christ is integral. It's, it's, not, it's not optional. It's an integral part of what salvation consists in, to follow the example of Christ. He also came to give us teaching when he sent the disciples out after his resurrection to make disciples of the whole world. He said, go into all nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you. So he saves us by his example. He saves us by his teaching. Right Now, here is a really subtle thing that Jesus did. Very cool, very good stuff, but it's a little bit deeper. Christ came to be the second Adam. You mentioned that God closed the gates of heaven when Adam sinned. And in Adam, all of us fell. We lost that gift of grace in Adam's fall. Christ came to be the second Adam to recreate the human race. And see, if we're created, if our lives are kind of biologically, as it were, patterned after the genetic structure, the biological pattern of the first Adam, Mm -hmm. Christ came to do that in the spiritual realm, to create a kind of, if you will, a DNA blueprint, but for for Mm -hmm. spirituality rather than for biology, and, and to infuse that into us spiritually through the gift of his Holy Spirit. And in that way, he's a second Adam. And we, we enter into that life of Christ through baptism, through grace and the sacraments and faith. St. Paul says that we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. And that we come to possess Jesus' mind. 1 Corinthians 2, he says we have the mind of Christ. So the way Christ thought about things, the way he related to his Father God, the way he related to his neighbors, that comes to be infused within us by the Spirit of God, changing our character, making us more like Jesus, so we come to think and see the world as Jesus did. So it's not just seeing Christ out there as an object outside of me mm-hmm. and obeying his teaching and following his example, but those things now become an inner principle within me. This is when Jesus said in John 14, if you love me and keep my commandments, my Father and I will come to you and make our dwelling within you. So the indwelling Christ changing our character and our thinking and our affectivity and our emotions and how we understand things. It's a critical part of the way in which he saves us. And, you know, if you're in Christ, if you're connected to him, Christ overcame death, hell, and the grave, rose again on the third day. Have you ever watched a train with a long, you know, like got got an engine with a whole bunch of train cars after it? And the, uh, and the engine goes down in a tunnel, maybe goes down real deep, and then mm-hmm. comes out the other side. And imagine if you're the caboose, and, uh, and you see the engine go down in the tunnel, and you don't see where the tunnel ends. But somehow, you know, around a corner, you see the engine come out the other side of the tunnel. <laughs> you still hadn't gone in the tunnel yet. Yeah. But you see the engine come out. 
you're not afraid of the tunnel because you know that you're connected. And if the engine goes down and comes out, you know you're going to go down and come out. In that way, if we're connected to Christ, he descended to the dead and rose again. We stay, we're the caboose hooked up to his train car. We follow him down. We follow him back up again. All right. That's also part of the way in which Jesus saves us by incorporating us into mystically into his own body that conquered death, hell, sin, the grave, rose again from the dead. But there is a sense in which Christ also died on our behalf to make atonement. Atonement means reconciliation with God. We offended God by our sins. Christ offers God the Father something of infinite value, namely his own life as a sacrifice. Christ is the high priest who offers himself on the cross. And just like in the Old Testament, worshipers would bring a calf or a bull or a goat and they would offer it. And, uh, and God would accept that offering as a gift of love, and he would, you know, grant some boon. Christ offers himself, and in recompense for this great gift of self, God pours out on Christ's body, which is the church, the gift of grace and the Holy Spirit. And so that also is an important part of the way. And so that's why when you go to confession, you confess your sins to a priest, the priest can forgive you. We have absolution and forgiveness of sins because Christ merited that for us by the gift of himself, by his own self-sacrifice. But there's an important way in which this idea in the Catholic Church is different from non-Catholic religions. And you pointed out that there's some non-Catholic churches that talk about Jesus dying for their sins. And when they use that language, they mean something else. Some of those groups think, and this is wrong, this is not what the Catholic Church thinks, but some of those groups think that Jesus was actually punished by God, that God punished Christ for our sins, that, that God poured out his wrath on Christ for sins that Jesus himself did not commit, but that God imputed to him as if he had committed them so that he could then go and forgive mm. sinners scot-free, as it mm-hmm. were, because he'd already punished them in the person of Christ. Yeah. Catholics don't believe that. We don't believe that because it makes God into an unjust tyrant. You know, God doesn't punish the innocent to acquit the guilty. God changes the guilty to make them innocent. And that's the Catholic view. All right. Betty, thank you so much uh, for your call today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. We're going to get to another call from Joseph in just a moment here. Let me tell you about something wonderful now available from the EWTN Religious Catalog. It is the San Damiano Crucifix. Now, if you've watched the Mass on EWTN television, you've seen it because we've got one, a big one, right there in the EWTN chapel. All Franciscans cherish the San Damiano Cross as a symbol of their mission from God to commit our lives and our resources to renew and rebuild the church in the power of God. So the one we're talking about today, it is uh, framed in a beautiful gold-finished wood molding, handcrafted right here in the USA, 15 inches by 20 and a half inches. It has a sawtooth hanger on the back. Check it out. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Here now is Joseph in Henderson, Nevada, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Hey there, Joseph. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Tom. Hi, Dr. Anders. Uh, first off, I want to, as always, thank you guys for the great program you put and how much inspiration you guys have given me to press forth in my own vocal ministry um, in the future of a podcast. But uh, my question for Dr. Anders today is regarding um, how to remain faithful to my Catholic faith without um, seizing into my emotions. So what's been going on is um, I've been attending my parish for the last, you know, 15, 16 years, long, very long time. My family kind of helped build the parish. Um, 
But I noticed um, something about our priest, about our pastor. Um, and the older I've gotten, he gets up on the altar, he'll preach about really good stuff, I mean, things that we should practice. But then when I feel like I want to have a more personal relationship with him, or close relationship with him, I feel like he kind of, um, I don't want to say ignores, but I, I'll just say it very respectfully, I don't think he lives the faith that he preaches. I don't think he lives what he preaches, as, and it kind of has made me angry and kind of like tell my family over the last few months, you know, like, you know, those Protestants, you're going to see more of them in heaven than you're going to see Catholics. And I, I hate to say it, but like, i got to be honest, Catholics to me have been like kind of proven themselves to be um, at least a majority that I have seen to be, you know, they, they go to Mass, they pray the Rosary, but they really don't live the faith, the beautiful faith that it is. And then I'll see, like, converts from Islam who become Catholic. Like, there's a priest in Lebanon who became Catholic, and he's a priest now, and I just am like, wow, he's so true to his faith, and he feeds the homeless. So, Dr. Anders, if you can kind of give me some reassurance on how I can... Yeah, sure. I really appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So, the Church is not the cleric. The Church is not the Pope. Yeah. Church is not the bishop. The church is the people of God. Christ said mm-hmm. of the people of God that it would contain tares and wheat, good and bad. Yep. That judgment comes at the end, and God will, you know, divide the sheep from the goats and lay out the judgment of souls and all that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, when when you're seeking out pastoral care or maybe a spiritual mentor, uh, you know, don't be a respecter of persons, and certainly not of the collar. Honestly, just because somebody wears a collar mm. doesn't make them holy. My counsel is to find uh, mentors uh, who are holy, who have what you want. Uh, in my life, I have been blessed that I have I have known pastors that behave mm. scandalously, but God has always seemed to give me at least one Catholic cleric in my life uh, who was exemplary and showed uh, unfailing uh, solicitude to me and to my family. And and typically, those men have not been pastors of parishes, have not been people of power and influence in the Church. They have been parochial vicars. <clears throat> They've been junior clergy. They've been religious. Um, sometimes, if they are pastors, they may be pastors who have been sent to the hinterland, right, that are not in charge of the biggest parishes, you know, that have the most powerful appointments. Mm -hmm. They're not ladder climbers. They're not politicians. They're not out for their own self-aggrandizement. They're not careerists. The Pope is always criticizing priests that become careerists and try to advance their career over the pastoral needs of the people. And there are plenty of priests out there who are holy, self-sacrificial, kind, loving people who want to give themselves uh, for the good of the Church and for for the good of souls, um, that uh, that don't seek the highest place at the table. And so guess where you're not going to find them? At the highest place of the table, yeah, yeah. right? And, um, and so, you know, I would ask around, somebody that you trust, people mm-hmm. that you trust, like, who do you know that you think is, uh, you know, a genuine, who should I go to for spiritual direction? Who should I go to for pastoral care? Who do you think really cares? And so you'll find somebody in that, oh, sure. that way, you know? Sure. Maybe a deacon, um, maybe a religious uh, maybe a lay person, right? In my life, I've always been blessed to have at least one good priest in my life, and I'll, always kind of one at a time. I never get like overloaded. Just just <laughs> what I need, you know, just what I need at that sure. stage of my life, and um, and and that's what I, you know, that's what I would do. Now, I'd also add to your reflection. Look, I I know there are pastors that don't live the faith generously, and that can be a great scandal. 
I am very conscious of how I fail to also live the faith generously. Right. I, I know that I screw up, mess up a lot, have to go to confession. And uh, there are some people that think I'm a great guy. And there's some people that, you know, think I'm like the worst guy they've ever seen on the planet, you know, and, and folks that, you know, don't like me and are quick to point out my faults. And I'm sure in their eyes, maybe I'm a scandal to the faith. Right. And I pray that I'm not, obviously. But uh, my point is, you know, priests are human beings, and so am I. Mm. And so am I. And so while when it comes to my own pastoral care, I want to seek out that pastoral care that's going to be good for me in my spiritual life. But when it comes to judging souls and making an evaluation about who's going to go to heaven and who's not, I'm going to be really careful because I know what Jesus said about taking the the log out of my own eye before yeah. I take the splinter out of my neighbor's. And um, and that priest, you know, this or that priest, maybe, maybe they do have a moral failing or a character flaw or a personality quirk that's really deficient. Maybe they're not very good at their job, maybe. Maybe I do, too. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, Joseph, thanks for checking in from uh, Henderson, uh, Las Vegas area. I'm sure there's some wonderful uh, folks there that you can uh, look toward. As we're heading out the door here, a quick question from John on YouTube. The teaching on what is allowed in Catholic dating and even marriage seems to be one of the biggest stumbling blocks in following the faith. Could you speak to this? Yep, it is a stumbling block in following and coming to the faith for many people. For others, it's a motive to come to the church, Mm. right? When when you have finished exhausting yourself through the ravages of the sexual revolution and you're ready to live a different way that treats your body and other people's bodies with dignity and respect, then the theology of the body in the Catholic Church is the place for you to come to. And and the teaching of the church, the official teaching. The teaching of the church. It's beautiful. It's beautiful stuff. You know, um, Mark Regneris wrote a book called, I think it was called Cheap Sex. It's a sociology uh-huh. about what has happened in the lives of people, women in particular, uh, in this uh, libertine sexual culture. And it's not good. It's not good for people, right? So the church's position takes a lot of discipline and 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 and, and an effort, and it can be it can be challenging. Uh, but the payoff is there. It's real. Better believe it. John, thanks so much for your question. And uh, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio. We hope you join us next time. I'm Tom Price. Until then, have a great day.